Welcome to the 1000 Experiments Club podcast. It's your guide to building a culture of experimentation. Our goal is to bring you all the lessons and insights from the leading experts so that you can shortcut your way to creating successful experimentation programs. This podcast is brought to you by AB Tasty, a solution that helps businesses improve their user experiences through experimentation, personalization, and feature management. Welcome everyone to another edition of our Thousand Experiments Club. My name is Marilyn Montoya, VP of Marketing at AB Tasty, and I have the pleasure today of welcoming Jeremy Epperson. He is the Chief Growth Officer at Conversion Advocate. He's a 14-year CRO veteran. Thank you for being here, Jeremy. Maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about you and you know who Jeremy is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Marilyn. I appreciate that. I'm excited to do this. So like you said, I've been doing startup growth and CRO for 14 years now, like run my own businesses. I've mostly worked in consulting or in digital agencies. So my whole focus has been, how do we create a repeatable proven process for CRO? So you can put it in place across verticals, across business sizes. And that's what I've focused the last maybe like 10 or 12 years to. And I've launched CRO from scratch for 155 different growth stage startups. And being a data nerd, the entire point behind that is capture everything, program level effectiveness, like what are the roadblocks? How do people approach testing? So we've tried to dissect everything that we possibly can so we can make CRO easier for teams. And Jeremy, before when we had our side discussion, when we talked about why it would be interesting to have you on this podcast, I think that you have a very unique perspective. I mean, being a data person, being someone who loves numbers, but having the approach that you'll share with us today is very different. And also it opens the door to thinking about CRO in different ways. So really happy to have you here and be able to share that perspective. So let's jump right in. One of the things that is very interesting about the way you talk about CRO, you say that CRO is better at shifting market positioning than branding. Very interesting statement. It says, imagine standing behind your product boldly in a boring landscape. This is my definition of CRO. Can you please elaborate? Because that is quite a statement. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a statement. I definitely don't shy away from the contrarian stances that I take, but I can also back them up with data. And I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm an open book about this. But here's the stance is if we take it up to the 50,000 foot view, there's two different schools of thoughts that exist, right? Like, can we or can we not control the customer journey? So from a pure old school branding perspective, it's like push marketing. We're pushing this message out and this is how people are perceiving it because we control the narrative. That's just not the reality of the situation. Maybe that was when TV and radio commercials were the only things that existed in the 50s, but this is a digital age where if you look at the reality of user behavior, you can go to any forums or review sites, or you can find out pricing for products if it's SaaS, or you can find out how the quality of products for like an e-com business. We just can't control all the inputs and we can't control the customer journey. And assuming that we can leads to bad decision-making. So my entire philosophy and the way that we approach CRO is we're not trying to do this push form of marketing. What we're trying to do is we're looking at the, the four main phases of the customer journey and we're trying to optimize each of those experiences that they have. And that's what we can control and influence, right? And we can do that with the data-driven scientific testing approach, right? Like what you guys do at AB Tasting. So it's a different worldview, but what that trickles down into is different processes, different ways for making decisions. It reshapes how you think about optimization. And that's really critical for CRO success. 
So what you're saying is, if I understand it correctly, is that because of the change of the landscape and the way people shop and the way people consume, there are these different phases of the customer journey. And that if you're a brand that's focusing on how a visitor, a customer interacts with the brand at that point in time and at that phase, that has a bigger and more important impact on the brand and the perception of the brand than some branding message that's being pushed to them. That's my take for sure. That's probably yeah. not a popular <laughs> opinion, well, depending on who you are, but you know, that's the way that we approach it. And we've been really successful with that. We spend a lot of time talking about customer experience and the, the impact that this has on brands. And I think you're on point with that, because if you look at all the brands today that are not typically companies that are digital, right? They're maybe brick and mortar or even just brands that sell something that has nothing to do with technology, like sneakers or coffee or cosmetic. There's a tremendous effort and investment in digital experiences and creating these fluid point A, point B experiences. And I think that if these successful brands are doing this, there's a reason behind it, right? Like there must be some driving force and they're, they're being successful with it. They're driving growth. So there is something there behind those strategies. Actually, you bring up something that I probably wouldn't have even mentioned, but if you're Coca-Cola, if you're Nike, if you're, I don't know, Budweiser, then you can spend a billion dollars pushing messaging across every channel. And it's just relentless, right? It's like Super sure. Bowl commercials. We just had the Super Bowl. It's like $18 million on something that hundreds of millions of people are going to see. That's great. But most businesses are not in that situation. So trying to operate from that perspective is a serious fault that's going to inhibit growth, right? So if we're thinking, I always talking about like growth stage startups, which is my niche that I work with. So sure. series B, series D, even publicly traded companies, they don't have those advantages of having hundred year brands. Why work from that perspective? Why not focus on controlling the touch points that you can through research and testing and using that if you wanted to put it this way to like develop that marketplace reputation? That's a valid point. And I, I think that, yeah, there's no comparing apples to oranges there. I think you're right that Coca-Cola is definitely not going to have the same budget or the same approach, that kind of startup company. But what I do think is interesting is that even these big companies, sometimes they get it wrong or they're focusing yeah. on the wrong things. And so you can have a smaller company really excel in the way they're presenting digitally. And that makes them competitive. Like you can take market share from giants because you're just moving faster. You might be learning about the customer at a faster pace or being more proactive and reactive at the same time. So maybe you maneuver better. And ultimately that kind of levels out the playing field. Absolutely. It's a huge competitive advantage. And it's something that we focus on specifically with our clients. It's probably the biggest competitive advantage. We can move quickly. We can experiment faster. We can, we have more autonomy to conduct market and customer research and to be able to pivot on positioning quickly. Like I recently had a client that at the end of, what was it like, we're nine and a half months into jumpstarting CRO. The CMO comes back to me and goes, Jeremy, you totally rebranded our website. And I go, I'm floored. I don't know what you mean. Like, what do you mean I rebranded your website? And you're like, well, we've run like 50 tests and literally everything has changed. If you look at the before and after, this is a totally different experience with totally different features and totally different messaging. So that trying to give a concrete example here of what that looks like and how CMOs perceive it, because it's a different approach, right? And that's what we're getting at. That's my passion in life, getting in the weeds with teams and helping them iteratively work through this entire process. Yes. And the thing is, if that wasn't incorporated into it, they would have stuck with some tagline, some proposition that was the final decision. And then they would have gone straight with that and not tested anything and then wondered, hey, was this the best we could do? Is this what our customers were looking for? So I think that's really great to, to have that approach, but it does take a shift in attitudes and leadership and being open to that, you know, not necessarily knowing what to do, but knowing how to approach 
doing something like that, right? Or being open to not knowing the answer, but being open to changing consistently based on data. Absolutely. Can I add another point to that? I think CRO is the best mechanism. It's a catalyst for growth, right? It's a mechanism that puts a team in a, let's call it a challenging position where they have to rethink things, right? So it's about building a process, building workflows and communication and breaking down silos. That's way more valuable from a CRO perspective than any individual winning test. So it's the process, it's working through the team building aspect, it's putting the pieces in place to be able to scale a business rapidly. And Thero is the best foot in the door mechanism that I have seen for doing that. Thoughts on that? <laughs> I am so glad you're saying this because one of the challenges that we have working in this space is that people say, oh, CRO is just version A versus version B and version B is better and it had X percent uplift. But that's so reductive if you look yeah. at CRO from that point of view. And so many companies judge the value of investing in CRO by those standards. It's just like, oh, well, these last few months I've obtained X amount in revenue uplift or I've avoided implementing five failed tests. But there's so much more behind it. It's, it's the scientific method being incorporated into the way you're running a business. And especially for marketing and for sales and for growth, we have these tools available to help us be more efficient in the way that we spend our budgets and the way that we approach anything, whether it's building something, writing something, launching something. And, you know, it's it's hard to make that change management in that perception on what CRO is. And I think the way you said it, it's just growth strategy. It's a, it's a mechanism for running a business, really. Yeah. And the, the CMO, this is my perspective on this as well. I believe that CMOs own the customer, for lack of a better term. They own the customer and the customer journey. And that's their responsibility to kickstart things like CRO. Or I think it's their responsibility to pull together different stakeholders. And CRO is a way for them to be able to do that effectively. So I always refer to the hub of insights. Like they are supposed to be the hub of insights driving organizational change. And that's being data-driven across the board in a business that's being customer-focused. That's pushing on iteratively testing. It's pushing on market and customer research. And that hub of insights, if you think myopically about CRO being on-site A-B test, like you said, you're leaving a lot on the table. This is what we've done with some clients recently. We conducted some market research and we passed through recommendations on how they test iteratively tested their ad creative and social how they tested ad copy and search. We restructured their email flows based on like three personalized segments. They altered their script for customer service because we found out here's the three primary objections that everybody asked. So when we look through chat transcript analysis, it's like, why don't we just tell the, this information up front and not have them blowing up the customer service reps time? That's what CRO is to me. And I know a lot of people don't agree with me when I say it like that, but it's the reality of the situation if you want to drive the most value from it. And it's not a 4% lift in added carts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what you said, I love what you call that, like the CMO owner of the customer journey and being an insight hub. And one of the distinctions that you make is testing versus research. When you say that research for research's sake can be valuable for shifting mindset, can gain insight that you wouldn't otherwise have, but unfortunately this isn't good enough and that you'll be leaving a lot of money on the table. So can you talk a little bit about that economy between testing and research and how should they work together? Yeah, definitely want to flush this out because that probably doesn't make sense hearing me say that. <laughs> but if we dig into this more, I think of research and testing as two sides of a coin. They support each other. It's a feedback mechanism where testing drives the need for digging into more quantitative and qualitative research. Research insights can be directly applied to activating those insights through channels or on-site testing. And if you only have research and you just make a bunch of random changes, we have no idea what the impact is 
and we have no learnings. If you only test and it's not supported by research, like we have the numbers on that. So if you just randomly guess, you're going to have about a 12% validated win rate. If you actually are using any kind of customer data points or research methods to apply to testing, then your average validated win rate actually doubles to 24%. And that's aggregating data across hundreds of businesses. So that's the real numbers, right? That's like us having calculated the average validated win rate across hundreds of businesses accurately documenting that and going, if you're going to take a data-driven, customer-focused, research-backed approach, you're going to get 2x better results. That makes a lot of sense from the point of view of saying, okay, if you research a customer preference, for example, and so you know that there's a certain preference or a certain tendency based on some qualitative research, some NPS, some surveys, et cetera. And then you say, well, okay, let's run a test that's going to compare, you know, message A versus message B. So it sounds like there might have a better performance overall because your testing is focused and based on something. But then what do you do afterward when, okay, let's say you run a test and the results are either not what you expected or inconclusive. How do you incorporate the research back into that so that you take that learning and apply it somewhere? Like what would be the next step after say an inconclusive test or a test that had a result that you did not expect based on initial research? So there's a couple of things. We know that kind of the standard of taking a data-driven approach to testing, you're only 24% of tests are going to win. So most of your tests are going to fail. And each of those is going to provide an insight for us. Let's talk about like post-test analysis and how we do that. Cause I think that's what you're asking, right? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. 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 So we have a very structured process around post-test analysis. So there's only three things that can happen with the test. It can hit stat sig on lifting conversions. It can decrease conversions or it's flat. Each of those teaches us different things. A flat test means one of two things. Either they didn't notice the variation, like the change in the experience. So it didn't alter their behavior or they did notice that and it still didn't alter their behavior. So now what we've done is we've created a backlog of things that don't work. And or that are not important to the action or behavior of the person, right? Exactly, right? So we're making two lists. We're making the list of what matters and what doesn't matter to oversimplify sure. it. And most teams only focus on the winning test or they get really nervous when they have a big losing test, right? I mean, to oversimplify this again, but the inconclusive tests are just as valuable because it gives us a couple points of feedback. One is we know it doesn't work like what I said. Also, if we're stringing together a number of inconclusive tests, then there's something wrong at the program level. So we're not focusing on like, let's say we have 10 tests and all of them are completely flat. All right, I'm just using a concrete example. Something's wrong. So we're not directly confronting the conversion roadblocks. Like that's my term I use, like what's blocking them from converting. If we're not targeted in on the things that are blocking them from converting, then we're not going to see big movement in the conversion rates, good, bad, or indifferent. So that's really important. The that's second, interesting. That means you're not researching the right things or you're not focusing on the right problems. Exactly. Perhaps. And what we're trying to do in any 90 day growth plan is we're taking research, previous testing results, strategy, et cetera, et cetera. And we're packaging that together into three to five primary conversion roadblocks blocks that we're trying to make progress against. So what are the biggest issues from a customer's perspective or user's perspective? And then we're iteratively testing against that. And you can't really push it past that. You can't fix 20 things at the same time. It's just a mad mess. You know what I mean? CRO is hard enough. Don't make it harder on yourself. So usually we're like, here's the two or three things that we're going to focus on. And here's the part of that customer journey we're going to focus on. But back to the post-test analysis, if you have a big movement in conversion rate, like plus 10, minus 10, you know, relative change in conversions. Now we've touched on something that we know they care about because it's altered their behavior. So 
if we have a winning test, it's like, yay for us. But does that fully resolve that conversion roadblock? Because that can only be an incremental aspect of it. So we can still, a lot of teams, when we do these CRO maturity assessments, we see get a winning test, move on to something else. Well, we just found a critical thing <laughs> that was wrong. And what you need to be doing is running two, three, four, five more variations against that to be like, how can we continue to improve this problem? But that's not how people do CRO. The biggest thing is when we have losing tests, we curl up in a ball and we cry about it and then we move on, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh no, we ignore yeah. it. It's like, no, 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 next one. Let's focus on the next test, yeah, you know? Yeah, don't evangelize these results, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't show this. <laughs> yeah, but the problem with that is that's the best gift in CRO because we just touch something that we know is really important. We just try to solve it in the wrong way, right? So what we need to do is run multiple variations against that. So the big movement in conversion rates, when we see the big swings, we need to double and triple down on those things. So another part of our methodology to post-test analysis is actually, okay, if we have to generate new hypotheses, win, lose, or draw, we're going to produce new hypotheses. Also, for the sake of building the testing backlog and the sake of increasing the sophistication of our testing, we're going to create at least three variations for each of those hypotheses. So now let's say out of a test, we have nine different variations that we could run. Three hypotheses okay. with three variations each. Now, sorry, I'm just like rambling. I get so excited that- No, um, no, this, this, is, this, is, this is so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody talks yeah. about this. I only like talking about the stuff that nobody else in Zero is willing to talk about. This huh? is really interesting. This is exactly what people need to discover because there's so much into it. There's so much involved in this process. So I think yeah, it's great and, that you're revealing <laughs> all of it. <laughs> and, and you can just see how we've like, if you do this hundreds of times, you boil everything down into a process documented SOP. Like these are all standardized things that we do and we put in place for CRO, like teams, programs, growth teams, like whoever we're working with. I even like consult and coach on these things where it's like, look, all of these are defined problems that are solvable. Any issue yeah. you're running to, and I already have the answer to how we solve that thing. It's just, you're either not aware or you're not doing it, right? So with this, it's really valuable because what is one of the biggest struggles is we don't know what to test. Okay, well, we can solve that easily, right? Because one test just produced nine more variations. Okay, so you run 10 tests and you have 90 more variations. You, you look at heat maps and you have five more hypotheses and 10 more variations. You look at analytics. So in the first 90 days, what we're trying to target, just so we have a concrete number, is we want 150 different data-driven hypotheses. That's what we accomplish for every client. And like I said, you can spin up multiple variations of that. So once we prioritize down our hypotheses and we're like, here's the top hypotheses we want. This is how the sausage is made. This is like what happens behind <laughs> the scenes. So when we go into our CRO strategy calls, we have the data, we have the research, we have the previous test results. It's all at hand. And yeah. then it's a, a process of multiple people with varied skill design, development, analysts, CRO strategists with different takes. And we're actually creating very variations and we're challenging and refining those. Okay. okay. So if your idea is like, Hey, I'd like to run variation A. Okay. Well, Marilyn, what if we ran variation B? It's slightly different, right? It's a different approach to messaging. Okay. Yes. And somebody else can say, here's variation C. So now we're building this like bigger backlog of tests, but also what I've found to be true is like when you dig multiple layers in, you end up with a higher quality variation and you end yeah. up with a higher validated win rate. So for example, in that scenario, so I think it's very interesting. You have a lot of people around the tables. So you've got UX, you've got probably copywriters, you've got yeah. design. So when you're thinking about those different variations, is there a, a consensus on, okay, everybody gives a piece of insight based on some data, based on research, based on experience to create a variation where all those inputs are made into one, or do each of these individuals kind of have a say and you break it down so you can isolate the variables? How do you approach that? Because I imagine yeah. people have different perspectives and they're sometimes conflicting or not, or how do you manage that, those different points of view? 
Yeah, so there's a couple of cool things on this. So one is like, we should have conflicting tactful, but conflicting opinions, right? Like, sure, sure. Um, and, and that's a part of it is this challenging mindset, this growth mindset of how do we pick things apart and make it better? How do you make my idea better? How do my, I make your idea better? That's part of like high functioning growth teams. So that's just like the mentality kind of philosophical side of things. But the technical tactical is everybody's bringing their new hypothesis or their new variation to the table. And then Mm -hmm. we're reprioritizing and resorting that. So there's that level of like, okay, how are we going to prioritize these? But there's secondary level of like, how do we, for a lack of a better term, argue over the details of like how we frame this up? Because you write the same message 17 different ways as a copywriter, right? So like the whole team is looped into the whole strategy and research and testing process. Mm-hmm. And that enables everybody to come to the table informed and to continue to contribute ideas. So there's a level of transparency and visibility. Somebody has to be the team lead though, because sure. somebody has to have the final say, right? So in our situation, it's a CRO manager because we're a consulting firm that could be different people. It could be a CMO. It could be like a CRO specialist in a business. Somebody's got to have the final say or it turns into a mess. <laughs> sure. Right? Of course. Everybody's going to be pushing their variation and thinking, okay, the research says that this one should be better or this one should work. You know, this version is the best version. <laughs> yeah. So managing those expectations and getting that buy-in is great. What we've found from like jumpstart. So we specialize in jumpstarting CRO. Your team's not doing it. We have to get mm-hmm. this high performance. I mean, as short a timeline as possible. So one of the things we found is at first, everyone's skeptical. Like I know you know this, right? From the testing platform perspective, you're like, everybody's yes. kind of skeptical. And do we want to put budget behind this? Who's really wanting to be involved? There's a magic moment that happens that is just mind blowing. It's one winning test, one winning test. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and one winning test changes everybody's perspective on it. Right. So yeah. like we're, we're positive with ROI now. Everybody's happy. Now it raises eyebrows and everyone's like, I want to be involved in this. And part of the process is as you share the research insights that challenge internal assumptions, as you put together a couple winning tests, or at least insights on big movements and conversion rate, even if a big losing test can be like, oh, wow, what's going on over here? And people get excited. And part of CRO is from a team perspective, you have to get people excited. You have to get them passionate about wanting to be involved in it. You mentioned something really great, which is like that organizational change kind of perspective, right? And like, yeah. we can't change organizations without getting people excited and bought in. And exactly either research or testing can be the lever that is the tipping point, but that's what we have to get people to. And we have to get them there rapidly because the reality mm-hmm. of the situation is we don't do anything in business that doesn't have positive ROI, right? So I think that's the challenge as well is that, so you have those winning variations and then internally within the organization, people start getting excited and they start understanding they but they start thinking still usually at the beginning they start just thinking in this black and white way where it's like oh well if i'm investing x amount in this strategy and i'm getting on average x amount of you know uplift in conversion well this is the value attributed to this strategy and that's where i think you know you can see that the companies that are a little bit more innovative and mature versus the ones that get kind of stuck in an old way of thinking because those that do advance they they start seeing actually there is value in these failed tests as well or at least like let's you know we're optimizing our product roadmap because we're not building things that should not be built. Or actually, let's have the engineers incorporate testing into their strategy. So it's not just marketing and the digital team, but it starts being the product team as well. And so you can see this change happening within the organization where it's like, okay, it's not just about this test and this positive result, even though that is kind of the driving force in the beginning that kind of gets everybody excited about it. 
maintaining and continue to evolve that conversation internally, I think is what becomes the challenge. And then depending on how that is driven internally, it, either the company evolves in that sense. And then, you know, you start seeing experimentation creeping into all the different departments, into the content department, into, you know, product team versus those companies where it's like, oh, well, we only had 12% uplift in our conversions this year. And so that gets back into your topic about, well, were they doing the proper research to structure their experimentation? But aside from that, they start saying, okay, well, this isn't big enough of an uplift for us, for us to continue investing. And that's where it's kind of unfortunate because it wasn't a fair or not an accurate representation of what you can get from CRO, right? We're really believing in it and understanding what it actually is. Do you run into those situations? And then how do you combat that? Or how do you open people's minds to that? Yeah, great question. I love that question. So um, let's go back to the data, right? Like if we're (laughs) assessing the maturity of CRO programs and we're seeing the actual data of what really happens in the real world, we have 85 to 115 days, that range, like that window of time to show the value of CRO. That's what we have, or or those programs get killed. We know that across hundreds of businesses, we've isolated this, right? That's incredible. You've broken that down to that amount of time, like precisely. That's incredible. And that you're able to show that value in that amount of time is also pretty amazing. (laughs) Well, the point is like, we've had to, right? Like we've had to, like from an agency or consulting perspective, it's people to keep paying you. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So like, here's the value in that specific data point is it doesn't have to be a winning test, but a winning test is a lot more valuable than having to do the uphill, climbing up the mountain, trying to show the halo effects of value. It's just way easier. It's a way easier thing to point to and go, look at tests six. Yay for us, right? And then you don't have to fight that battle anymore because you put numbers to it. But it doesn't have to be that. doesn't have to be that. Like it can be one research deliverable. One usability study can be like, oh my God, I didn't realize there was these 17 things that are just fundamentally broken about the user experience. That can be enough. That shows the value, right? And if that's packaged with CRO, that can be enough, right? Or one test that challenges an assumption. Like we think this is our value proposition and this is what matters to customers and this is our brand. And we run a test and that's totally flat and they go, we were just wrong. That's enough to show the value. It doesn't have to be like, we've made $7 million off this. It just, we have to prove the value enough to get the buy-in for the next 90 day growth plan. That's what we're trying to accomplish. Incredible. So it's, it can be a great test, but it could also be a number of tests. It can be a number of insights on the entire user journey. It can be one result that blows everything out of the water. Your entire positioning can be questioned based on, you know, one test. So I think it sounds like it based on the context of the company, also understanding where their challenges are and where they need to figure something out. And I think maybe for those customers that only look at a transaction rate that because they weren't necessarily focusing on what their biggest challenges are or you know yeah. were yeah so very it, very interesting it could even be testing velocity itself we've gone from zero on-site tests to we just launched 15 tests in the first quarter i'm just making up a number but like sure that in and of itself is like wow we yeah. just did that like we got 15 different insights in a quarter and we didn't get 15 insights last year. Exactly, right? Like we didn't test anything. So again, it's just, it comes back to that point of showing the value. And also all of the things I'm talking about are intentionally structured to be like, we're reframing how we think about CRO. We're thinking about this, we're approaching it differently. So you don't have some of those misconceptions that creep in and create roadblocks essentially. Yes. And I I think what's really resonated with me is, you know, the the way that you were to the flat test, because usually this is the part that's the the least sexy part of the CRO. It's like, oh, you have the test and it's like, oh, it's a flat test. And let's not talk about the flat test. But actually what you've said, it's just so important. Actually having flat tests is showing you 
that you are not focusing on the right things. And that's such an important insight to have. And I think that it's often just dismissed like, oh no, okay, let's ignore what we just, you know, worked hard to prepare and just call it a, you know, a failed test. That's okay. Test and learn. Okay. Let's move on to the next thing. But I think that actually sitting back and being like, well, why are all these tests failing? <laughs> let's yeah. about that. So that's a good call, but I think that people don't think about it that way. So it's really interesting. When it comes to creating seamless, personalized customer experiences, marketing and product teams need to launch and test quickly. But how often is this really possible? AB Tasty's digital experimentation platform puts these teams in control, enabling them to set up tests in minutes with minimal coding needed. With AB Tasty, teams can spend more time validating ideas, maximizing impact, minimizing risk, and accelerating time to market. Give it a try and see why over 1,000 businesses around the world use AB Tasty. So you've talked a little bit about, you know, CMOs and not knowing what prevents people from buying or making a purchase decision. And a lot of the time there are acquisition strategies out there. People are investing a tremendous amount of budget on ads and content and whatnot, you know, and I don't think that the reflex is to say, Hey, let's focus on studying the customer and understanding why a conversion rate on an ad is low or why a copy is not working. And I think that the reflex is usually, okay, well, let's just try something else. Let's continue testing. Let's just write another line or try a different color or try a different ad. But you're saying here is that why not invest a little bit on research <laughs> and yeah. understanding that customer a little bit more. And that if you do invest that money and maybe not put, yes, you're taking maybe money away from budget spend, but just investing in a bit of research on the customer experience is going to make that budget spend more efficient. You know, I think at bigger scale, like maybe big companies, they do this. Smaller ones don't really do that because I think that they think I have to optimize every dollar, every euro I have on acquisition. So I'm not going to spend it on just insight, right? But, you know, I gather that you don't agree with that. So <laughs> maybe a bit of, of, you know, your opinion there on all that. Okay. So I think it comes down to customer blind spots. So the, the first three questions I ask a CMO are like, what are your 12 month business goals? What are your 90 day KPIs? Why does your customer buy or not buy? And a lot of times they don't have good answers to any of those, but the one they almost universally never have a good answer to is like why they buy or why they don't buy. So how can we grow a business? How can we scale a business? How can we build the proper marketing or growth strategy if we can't answer a couple of those questions? But this one is about the customer aspect, right? It's like, do we actually understand customers? So it really comes down to blind spots, awareness about, do we have blind spots? What are those blind spots? And the problem is that we are not our customers. Even if you're your exact customer and the demographic and the income range and like the need for the product, et cetera, et cetera, we know inside of a business infinitely more information than a potential customer does, right? Even if they're familiar with the brand or they know the product was recommended to them by somebody else, they just don't know, right? And we assume hmm. that they know way more than they really do. So the only way to uncover those customer blind spots is by conducting research to like eliminate them, right? And I don't know if this is helpful or not, but here's the four blind spots that we see in marketing or growth teams. One is your customers are not who you think they are. We're just wrong about who we think our customers are, right? And we can only yeah. suss that out with like the research and testing. Two, sure. this is a big one is your customers behave differently than you think, like what their journey looks like, what they, you know, care about. Three is your customers have different reasons for buying than you think. That's a big one. That's the thing we're touching on right now. And we'll come back to that. But fourth is your customers perceive your business products brand differently than you think. Than you think. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, exactly. So those are major blind spots with huge implications. Like if we want to dig into the number three here, it's like customers have different reasons for buying. If we're not definitively, we've proven through research and testing that these are their buying criteria, we're leaving a lot of money on the table. That's something that people don't spend enough time on, right? So journey is a part of that. The phase of the journey and how we optimize the part of that buying criteria is a part of that objections and unanswered questions that's a part of that it's a part of the buying decision the process sure. of them buying so like i said i literally interact like all i've done is interact with cmos for most of my career and i ask them these questions every time and i document how many times that's answered and how it's answered and things like that and it's just like hey i don't know and i mean usually if they're talking <laughs> to me <laughs> And that's true. There's a lot, there are many CMOs who will be listening to this who will be cringing a bit because they, they're going to realize they don't know the answers to these either. Yeah. So this will be the best and worst thing they did on this day when they listen to this, right? Like they're probably sure. going to be mad at me. But, like, oh, but... and then they're like, he's actually right. Actually, let me go back to the drawing table and make sure that I know the answers to these questions. <laughs> And, and that's the thing is we can be very good at educated guessing, but we can't know definitively, right? So the approach right. has to be like, we don't know, but we're willing to find out. That has yeah. to be the approach we take. And then yeah. you boil that down. And again, 90 day growth plan. So it's like, what are the three to five things that we could learn about customers in the next 90 days? through research and testing that's going to change the way we do business. Sure. It, what you're getting at as well is that when you're typically thinking about customer journeys on digital, I think people just tend to think maybe a page flow or a button or a call to action in a specific place. But I think what you're getting at is actually there's much more behind this that you can test. Let's say you have an idea as to why the customer is looking at that product and like what their driving force is. At that phase of the customer journey, even if it's on a digital channel and you're on a page with a product or with a call to action, you can include something in that test that is going to either validate or support or contradict some insight on the driving force. And I think it's the powerful strategy is combining both. So it's like you're addressing UX, you're addressing expectations in terms of what the customer is expecting just because of the way that technology is advanced or the way that they expect to browse or to, to have experiences that are digital or connected or in-store or of the like. But it's also about, okay, how can I use this opportunity, this one moment of truth, right? As we say in marketing, to understand this customer a little bit better beyond just the digital format, beyond just, okay, how does this person consume on digital, for example? I don't know if that makes sense, but I guess yeah, what I'm yeah, getting yeah. at is kind of combining more of that qualitative market customer understanding with digital medium constraints and optimization, right? And like, how do you understand the customer within a digital, for example, context versus an in-store context? And I think that's something where I have the feeling that a lot of the times it tends to get sidetracked and you end up focusing on the button, the color, the picture size, or the contrast, yeah. but there isn't so much into the, well, why or, yeah. or what, you know? So I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, for sure. It's a really, really great point that you're bringing up. And there's a couple components of this, the way I see it is one is we're selling to a customer through a screen. We're selling to a customer through a digital device. That's all we're doing, right? So this whole generation of marketers does not come from a direct sales background. I've knocked on doors to sell insurance. That's how I started sure. my career when I was in college, which is insane, sure. right? But, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I was horrible at sales. I was just so bad at it. I mean, it was just embarrassing. And I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. It's hide behind a screen and sell that way. It hurts your feelings less, right? <laughs> <laughs> a little less brutal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> 
But like the, the implication to that is we're selling, right? This is sales. Like marketing and sales can't be pulled apart, but I want to give a couple like concrete examples, right? Because this is a really important topic. So if we're talking about conversion roadblocks, again, that's my term. Why are they not buying? Here's case studies from the last couple of weeks of tests that we've run just to help people kind of frame this up better. For SaaS business, like Series C SaaS business, CMOs like, we don't know why they don't buy. Here's what we did. We interviewed five sales reps who are in the demos and we asked them, why do they buy? What kills your deals? Why do they not buy? And what are the top three to five objections? Then we went to customer success and we go, mm -hmm. what are the three biggest problems that people struggle with in the product? What are the things people misconceive about the product? Where do they get stuck? So now we have those data points. Then we did an exit intent poll on their demo and conversion pages. And the exit intent poll showed what are the top problems? Well, all of these are the similar or the same problems. And we're getting those mm. touch points from different parts of the journey, different people, different internal stakeholders. So what I talk about is getting a 360 degree understanding of customers. And if we only did one of those, we'd be like, okay, that's a couple of good insights and we can shuffle around on the page, right? But when we start collating and like synthesizing that and start to get in that bigger picture, then it helps us understand what those problems are. So here's all we did. We synthesize that down and we go, here's 10 questions or objections or issues that people are having. We put an FAQ form on the page right below the form, short page, uh, page form. It's like, you know, every demo page looks basically the same in SaaS. Right? The same. <laughs> so, sure, yeah, yeah exactly. Same template. <laughs> and you know what's going to happen after you convert and you know what the page looks like. And if you have budget, you bought tools before, et cetera, et cetera, right? So all we did is knock out all those questions and objections and clarify any issues that they had. 10 points. That's what we boiled it down to. 23% lift in lead conversion. Incredible. Incredible. But that's, that's what the process of CRO is, right? So like, we could do right. it for e-com too, right? So for e-com, we asked the customer service team, what are the biggest complaints? Like, why do refunds happen? What are the things they ping you about in chat all the time? Here's our three to five things. Then we go and we do a usability study on product pages as part of it. Sure. Why is everybody on the upsell? Everybody's like clicking them on and off. And then we have the session recording. And it's like, why does everybody unclick these weird little checkboxes that are pre-checked that look like upsells, but the price on the page, people aren't going to be able to see this, but there's the price listed. And then there's a price if you add in all the upsells. Okay. So this is a real problem because people are like the price for this product should be 150 bucks. And it looks like it's 800. So they think that's the oh. price and they have to buy all the stuff together. So we just killed all of those upsells because we have multiple touch points. That this is a problem yeah. where they accidentally buy all the stuff together and they're pissed off. So we killed that upsell, eliminated that confusion, 27% lift in purchases. Incredible. So what's interesting about that example is that here, I bet somebody was thinking, hey, let's add these options here so that we can increase average basket size, right? Because that's what yeah. obviously they were trying to do. They're like, okay, let's give these other products that we can bundle together and make it easy so that it's already automatically checked and all they have to do is check out. But it just seems like that was done from a point of view of like, okay, let's try to increase average basket size, but didn't think about the customer experience. And I yeah. think it, it, it could have been also a testing team or the site, you know, it could have been someone internally who says, okay, I'm going to manage the website. I need to increase LTV. I need to increase average basket size. Let me make these changes. And I think pr that's probably happening a lot at many companies. Yeah, and it, for the, <laughs> the ones that are not testing, they're just like totally shooting themselves on the foot. 
Yeah, I'm giving extreme examples of tests. Not every test looks like that. I get it. Yeah, it's yeah, a good example. It, exactly. And that is what testing looks like, right? So again, if we go back to like, we only have one data point or we have uh, educated guess or we have like hypothesis that came out of brainstorming. Well, you're not getting that 360 degree view, right? And that's the halo effect. That's the benefit. That's where you get basically penetration across the whole business, across the whole customer journey, thinking holistically about growth. It's not about this is what's good for us as a business. It's about we will do better as a business when we give the customer a better experience and we make their life easier and we make it simple to convert and we make it easy to buy and we eliminate all these roadblocks that frustrate them and cause them to abandon. So again, it's a mindset shift, but it also has direct application to revenue and growth. Totally. And I think that talking about just a different way to go about managing your digital experiences where you're just focusing on the customer. The customer is driving everything that you're doing and not have the marketer think that they know what they should be proposing to the customer. I mean, it's really just that at, at the end of the day is, is being customer centric. And I think weekdays context with the market that we live in, so much competition, low switching costs, you know, loyalty is difficult to maintain. Companies just can't afford to not be customer centric anymore. They just can't. They can't just expect customers to come to them without them catering to what they need and expect. On that kind of topic, there's something that you said that personas are not static one-time exercises. And I think we get back to this being customer-centric topic. How can companies create a comprehensive approach to testing, to being able to continue to evolve the personas in a way that is able to evolve with the personas as they evolve, you know? Because I think one of the problems that we have today, especially in B2B and in SaaS, is personas. And well, I think in B2C as well, right? You know, customer preference Preferences are constantly changing. The context is constantly changing. The factors that are affecting their decision-making are also changing. And a lot of times in these companies, you have big consultants that come in and you're running these huge projects around personas and understanding the persona and understanding what drives their decision-making. But you can do that today and six months later, it's no longer relevant. So I can use CRO to help you also have a persona strategy that lasts, stands the test of time. Yeah. So I regularly talk about this now. I'm very guilty of having done all of those expensive, fancy tools, very high price point, elaborate customer I think we all apps. have. Like, so we yeah, all yeah, yeah. have. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was like my job, right? I mean, that's what one of the things I did in consulting for a long time. But here's the problem with that. I don't use the term persona anymore. Like I personally will not say that term and I don't let others say it around me. That sounds weird again, right? It's like, a oh, I'm so thing. sorry. No, 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 sorry. I, that's, that's not geared at, that's not geared at you. That's not geared at you. I'm just saying to explain the concept, right? Of There's course, like, of let's, course. let's say A and B, you can take a brand-based persona approach and what are the like negative repercussions that it ends up being static. We pay a bunch of money and we create the persona and then it gets shelved. And it's never activated in testing, right? We never challenge the assumption. This is like research for research sake, right? Back to that point is like, okay, we've conducted research, but it hasn't changed how we test. It hasn't changed how we market. It hasn't changed our positioning. Like, so personas is like, it's stacking a bunch of attributes that you really don't segment or optimize on. You know what I mean? So or like test my, the validity. Yeah. Or test if they're still relevant, right? Because they might yeah. be relevant now, but they might not be a year from now. Yeah. And honestly, like, I just don't think from a CRO lens, I don't see how they're valuable because what we propose as a replacement for that is our four phase journey, right? So we can optimize 
you know, through AB Tasty, we can optimize the landing experience. We can optimize the on-site experience. We can optimize the conversion experience and we can optimize the customer experience. Those are four stages. But when you're really testing, when you're setting up an AB test or a personalization campaign, you're targeting that at one of those phases, right? And that's what we're trying to do. So we're not targeting that when we're technically, tactically like setting up a test. We're not targeting at a persona. We're just not, right? It's not the reality of the situation, right? So like if we're thinking yeah. about what do we really do from an optimization perspective, that's not what we're doing. So why focus so much research and effort and energy on something that we're not going to activate from just like a philosophical perspective. We're not even going to be able to activate it properly from a testing perspective. So it doesn't make sense. We have to change the way that we think about this. And when you focus okay. on the phases, it's like, here's the discrete things that we can do to optimize the landing experience. So if that's content on a channel basis, right? It depends. If you're A-B testing globally, it's going to look different than if you're segment-based personalization or whatever. But is it channel-based? Is that how we're testing into it? Is it content-based? Is it, you know, like there's different ways we can approach this and we have to shuffle through testing each of those. But when we focus on the phase, it's way more applicable. It doesn't get shelved because that research is done from the beginning through the lens of how are we going to apply this to a test today? And that's just a different mentality, right? So that's why I yeah. learned so much against the persona thing, because it gets people stuck and they don't have to be stuck. It's they don't have bad... to be stuck. Yeah. Well, I'm trying. So as I think through it, so for example, you know, you're in a specific phase of the user journey and let's say just for argument's sake, say that, you know, there are four different persona types that come to your website and that may want to browse your product. You could go through all that trouble to try to identify what personas are on your website, which I mean, good luck. I mean, you can try to, to segment them, but you, segmenting personas, I mean, you can, you can run into a lot of problems trying to do that in an efficient way. I think once you have, if you have a ton of data, uh, potentially you can do that, but I think people are way more complex than personas, right? So yeah. how do you, how do you, how do you, how can you create a system where you're giving the right treatment to the right person at the right time? Personas innately will not let you do that because it's a type. It doesn't mean that yeah. everyone follows that type. So it, it makes a lot of sense to think about the user journey in those phases. And you're saying, okay, imagine you're in like phase one or phase two, you're testing 20, 30 different things. In those 20, 30 different things, you might have a couple of things that have an impact, a couple of things that don't have an impact. And I think let's say out of 30, 40 tests, you have, I don't know, a quarter that have driven a specific result. So then you have those four different insights or those four different optimizations and they're Probably they could be four different people. They could be the same person. Uh, they could be, you know, they could be the same person in different points or at different times, you know? So I think what's interesting there is that you're just not adding that extra complexity of trying to understand what somebody should be doing at a specific moment based on like a preconceived notion. Instead, just using the testing to kind of tell you, okay, well, whoever it is, they respond well to this and they respond well to that. And so it just allows you to be a lot more practical, I think, in the approach than focusing on these very complex personas that are probably very difficult to boil down into specific customer audiences. You know, when you look at the data and the technology as well, you're seeing a lot of the data, a lot of the tooling, like the CDPs and the DMPs and everything, everything's moving towards AI, but also just like being able to identify what someone wants at a specific moment. And that's very granular. You're not going to build that with like a persona framework. Exactly. And that's the problem, right? Like we have to be realistic yeah. about like what we can actually activate. And that's, that's a serious problem. A, a subcomponent of that is everybody wants to go from like, we've never done any of this to like perfect one-to-one -one personalization. You're like, exactly, you, you, exactly. You, you, and the number of times <laughs> I've heard this, I mean, 
you're you're skipping five years you know what I mean? <laughs> like like the, the, <laughs> yeah. the technology the teams the like having the data scientists in place the the processes the workflow like it's a level it's a function of maturity right so like we're starting with yeah. most businesses in the world today are starting with like we got to get this started right like we got to start the research and testing process we have to build the the, the process, we have to build the capabilities, we have to get the right people on the team, like, we have to start with where you are. And then as you build momentum, as you drive value, as you drive insights and like prove revenue, then you can start adding in the layers of sophistication. So like, we don't ever start day one with like, let's try to like personalize across five different segments. It's just a bad place to start because there's so many things sure. that are broken and need to be fixed and just like global level things that need to be solved before we go down that path. And we won't know what the personalization strategy is until we work through that research and testing process. And that informs how we structure it, but it's like a future state, not, not where we start. So it's so important what you're saying, because that's exactly it. It's that crawl, walk and run. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's really about understanding what you need to know first. So you don't know what you don't know, right? So you need to start somewhere. <laughs> so you start knowing and discovering like, oh, we don't know this, or we should learn more about that. Or, oh, we never thought about trying to test this specific concept or idea or run some qualitative interviews. And so I think what you're saying is, is yeah, it is a function of maturity. You need to go through the motions of building the, almost that internal knowledge center. Like, as you said, you call it the insights hub. And building that intelligence about your business, intelligence about your customer. And then once you kind of have structured that and build the processes internally, you start collecting insights, you start digesting them, you start understanding them, you start acting on them. It's only then that you can start saying, okay, how can we become more sophisticated? Okay, let's invest in these fancy tools. Yes, let's let's hire the data scientists and do AI and run our own algorithms. You know, and I think there is this pressure today. Oh, one to one personalization, one to one experiences, and everybody wants to get there like tomorrow, but they're not doing the work necessarily, yeah. and that's when they're running into problems, inefficiencies. They're not ready. It's not driving that return on investment. If you you look at all the analyst reports, personalization still the number one tactic that all marketers want to implement, but all of them struggle to implement. You know, and <laughs> and I think you really hit the nail on the head with it because it is, it's a process. It's human as well. It's internal. It's really about re, like educating the organization. That's what it's, it sounds like. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, anyway, absolutely. yeah. Jeremy, look, I think that we could continue talking forever. I invite anybody who's listening to this session to check out Jeremy online on LinkedIn. We'll put the link information to reach Jeremy on our page and you'll be able to go find Jeremy and maybe reach out. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for your time. This has been so insightful and I think really, really helpful for a lot of people. I'm actually so eager to publish this one and to, to share it out there because I think a lot of marketers out there are going to really appreciate and be taking a lot of notes. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was excellent. And there you have it. Thank you so much for spending time with us. If you're looking for more insights on experimentation, be sure to subscribe to the 1000 Experiments Club wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening and see you next time.